ended in verse 8. If you remember from last week, there were three ladies who had gathered. They had, on the first day after the Sabbath, they had went to the tomb of Jesus. Three women by the name of, number one, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, or Salome, however you want to make it Hebrew-English, they had gone very early to Jesus' grave in order to anoint his body and to prepare him so that he would have a proper burial. See, he had died on Friday and then on Sunday, because the Jewish people have their Sabbath on Saturday, then on Sunday, as soon as they could, they rose early and they went to his tomb. What they did not know is that they would be met by an angel when they got there who would be preparing them. They thought they were going to prepare Jesus and instead they got prepared by this angel and sending them with a message to go and tell the disciples. So the message they were given, we found in last week's passage, said, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. You seek him in this tomb, but he is risen. He's not here. See where they laid him. And then he said, but go and tell his disciples. And Peter, he specifies Peter. Remember, Peter had denied Jesus three times, and so by this time, he's probably feeling pretty crummy, right? And so he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. And so I I like that because Mark is penned by a man named John Mark. He was a, a a Greek young man, and he was discipled by the apostle Peter. And so Peter, as he's telling these events to John Mark, remembers not just that Mary Magdalene was told to go tell the disciples, but he personalized it. He was like, no, he said, go tell the disciples and and Peter. He remembered that. He was like, I failed the Lord. And the Lord said, Mary Magdalene, make sure you go seek out Peter because he's going to need encouraged. He's going to feel pretty down for what he's done in denying me. Now, it says there that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him as he said to you. So the angel had given them, these ladies, a message for the disciples. And the message they were given was one of good news in the midst of what the disciples would have described as a very bad time. And the message also was one of a reminder, a confirmation, a direct message to the disciples. It's a personal message. It's meant to reach them personally. He's going before you, it says, to Galilee, and there you will see him. And it's a reminder because, if you'll remember with me, in Mark chapter 14, Jesus had told them that he was getting ready to be given over to the hands of evil men, and he was going to be crucified. Now, they didn't think, oh, well, he's going to get punished. They knew that that meant, as if in our culture, hey, I'm going to get the death sentence. They knew it was not more than just a punishment, but it was something that was going to end his life. So he said to them, I'm going to be killed, but don't worry because I will rise on the third day. Mark chapter 14, verse 27 through 28 says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the shepherd will be, and the sheep will be scattered. He was talking about the shepherd, Jesus Christ, and his disciples, the sheep would be scattered because he would be struck down. But after I've been raised, he told them, I will go before you to Galilee. He knew that they would head back that direction and he was going to meet them there. So multiple times he's reminded them, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to go back to Galilee. And this time in particular, he tells Mary Magdalene. He says, go and tell them, Jesus, the resurrected Christ. He's telling them, go and tell the disciples, I'm going to meet them in Galilee and there they will see me. 
I like that because he's willing to go and meet them even though they don't believe that he's going to rise from the dead, even though he told them over and over. So as we left off last week, the ladies had left the empty tomb with a message from the Lord and they even knew who they were to go to and share the message, Jesus' disciples. Now, how often do we see the 12 apostles or the 11, because Judas is no longer with them, how often we see them in stained glass windows with little halos drawn around their heads as if they're something special, as if they're, you know, there's something innately special about them that they were just these awesome godly men. I take encouragement in the fact that these awesome godly men were completely discouraged when their savior was killed, that they, were, they doubted. We always kind of rag on, on Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. But each one of these guys, they doubted. They doubted that this guy was really the Messiah. And so they went back to what they were doing. And the Lord sends these ladies who more than likely, I don't know about you gentlemen, but lots of guys in our culture don't like to listen to ladies. But in their culture, it was even more so. Many Jewish priests would actually, or rabbis would actually pray, Lord, thank you that I'm not a Gentile or a woman. And so they did not consider the words of a woman to be very trustworthy. But nonetheless, God chose to use a woman to speak to them. Maybe, just, I might insert this to humble them. Will you receive the message if I send it in a way that you're not used to? And that's often the question he's asking. But he sends them nonetheless. He sends them to these men of God. And he continues to encourage them. And how much he continually picked them up and they stumbled and they set the, he continues to set their feet back on the rock of Christ. So we'll start this week finally in Mark chapter 16, verse 9, where it says, Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, this is Jesus he's speaking of, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that, he was alive and had seen, been seen by her, they did not believe. So I just talked about the fact that he's sending the message through a, a medium that they may not be ready to receive through. They're not ready to listen to these ladies. Their, their savior, the person that they've given everything to follow has died and they're discouraged and no one's gonna change that. They're just stuck in their own little world. But Jesus keeps sending people to tell him this. So the resurrected Jesus here appears first to Mary Magdalene. And her backstory is quite amazing, actually. We, don't, we only get a glimpse of it in Scripture. But her backstory is that she was among the women who would provide for Jesus from their substance. From their possessions is what it means. This group of women did this because he had set them free. Mary Magdalene, it says here, was set free from seven demons possessing her. So... Demon possession is something that we see in the Old Testament. I believe it still happens today. But many times it was due to the fact that they gave themselves to something that was kind of a gateway to that. And many times we see this. There's gateways that are going to demonic things. Demons are real. Jesus attested to that fact by casting them out. But many times we don't think about the ways that people become demon-possessed. Many times it's because of occult practices Many times it's because of something as simple as many of you probably heard, a Ouija board. You know, they get involved with that and they get curious. They, they want to get more involved with it. And the reality is, is that you're playing with fire. You're opening yourself up to a realm that is more powerful than we are. 
That's why we need Jesus. He can be our shield in that. So this woman had been saved from these demons, and all of these women, seemingly, they had followed Jesus as disciples from the time that they were set free from whatever held them in bondage. They realized how much Jesus had done for them, and so as a response to that, their worship was a very practical way. What they did was they said, you know what, every time we go to work, we're going to use what we've gained to provide for what Jesus is doing because we've been impacted by the ministry that he's done in our lives. So we want other people to be impacted the same way. He set us free. If we support him, he can set other people free. And that's how he continues to grow the church. But these ladies in particular had a very special connection with Jesus. And it just so happened that when he was crucified... All of these ladies were there on the day of his crucifixion. They watched it happen. But unlike the disciples, they were also there. They were the first ones there at his tomb. Makes me think that they, even when he, would, he had died, they still they, they just felt like they hadn't done enough to love Jesus back for what he had done for them. So even though he had died, they wanted to go make sure he was buried properly. That was their act of worship. Even when it seemed like it was pointless to worship Jesus, they continued to come. My prayer is that we would know the depth of Jesus' love for us that has caused him to forgive us and to love us through so very much, just like these ladies do. Mary Magdalene knew how much she had been forgiven and that it was Jesus who had set her free. And as a result, she wholeheartedly followed Jesus. She wholeheartedly served him. I love what Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says. It says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes must, excuse me, he who comes to God must first believe that he is, that he exists, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. My prayer is that we would become those who would diligently seek him because our great and precious reward is his presence in our lives. Oftentimes we seek other things. Mary Magdalene wasn't seeking Jesus' hand. She wasn't seeking what he could give her. She was seeking him, and each time she sought him, he blessed her. And notice that she is the first one that he reveals himself to. Her reward for seeking him was his presence in her life. That's truly the only reward that we have that's worth living for in this life. So verse 10 has Mary approaching Jesus' disciples, and they're mourning and they're weeping, and they weren't coldly headed back to where they came from, but they were mourning. I think we need to notice that. The disciples had been hurt. They had someone very close to them that impacted them personally. And when he had went down, they were sad. They were sorrowful. They didn't just walk away and go, well, that was a waste of time. They were mourning. And I think oftentimes we think that we forget that. We're kind of hard on the apostles and the disciples. But Jesus meant something to them. They had sacrificed to follow him. They had laid down their lives. But now it was all a loss, or so it seemed. He was gone. The adventure was over. They had lost their purpose. Mary seeing this explains what the message that he had just given them to give to the disciples. She sees this, and she explains what she had seen, and that Jesus is not, in fact, dead. She, she just gave them the message that he gave them, gave her. He's not dead. He's alive. He's not in the tomb. He's risen. She told them the same message that she heard, and they having heard the message in her testimony, her eyewitness account, they didn't believe. Believe the word 
means to be fully persuaded. I learned that from my wife this week. She came home from Bible study. She said, you know what that word believe means? Well, I thought I did, but she gave me a better definition. She said it means to be fully persuaded, to be fully known, to make full proof of. Many times people go, well, Jesus, he was just, he was a good guy, but I don't know about him being God. We don't really have any proof. Well, if you read the gospel accounts and you hear the testimonies of those who walk with the Lord, that's the proof that God gives us. So Mark chapter 16, verse 12 says, After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. So the resurrected Jesus here appears to two disciples, first to Mary Magdalene and now to two disciples. Now, this is one of my personal favorite stories. So we're not going to just kind of stream past it. We're going to go and read it. It's in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. You'll turn there with me. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now it says that, in verse 13 it says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. This is the two spoken of in the verse that we just read. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. They're they're discussing the events that just took place, that Jesus was crucified. This was a monumental thing. It happened right before Passover. Everyone was in the city and knew, knew what was going on. Verse 15, So it was, while they conversed and they reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So imagine, if you will, they don't have cars. They're on this journey. They're driving like we would to grandmother's house, except they're not going to grandmother's house, obviously. They're just they're taking a trip and they're going back to Galilee. Right? No, they're going to Emmaus. Don't listen to me on that part. And reason that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So they have time to talk, is my point. They were going seven miles on a walk's journey, and so they had time to talk. Verse 16, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Jesus walks up to them, kind of overtakes them. He's right behind him, and he uh, approaches them. And as they're talking, it says that their eyes were restrained so that they did not know that this was Jesus. They just knew it was a guy. I don't know how it happened. I can't explain it other than it just says that their eyes were restrained. God kind of partially blinded them, so they knew there was a man there, but they didn't know that they knew who it was, that it was Jesus. So verse 17 says, He said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? What are you guys talking about? Then one, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? So this wasn't one of the eleven. This is one of the disciples. There was more than just the eleven disciples. This is another one of the disciplined ones that had followed him. And verse 19 says, He said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet. He was mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Notice it says there, he was mighty in his deeds, but he was also mighty in his words. They, they, they matched up. He wasn't a hypocrite. So he was spoken of well here. <clears throat> so he was mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. 
But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. In other words, by now you guys should know about this. What do you mean you don't know about what just happened? And verse 22 says, Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, they astonished us. And when they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. We just read about that. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, he's saying, you read the prophets, you knew that the Messiah would come. Ought not he to have also suffered? And we read that in Isaiah 53 about a month ago, where it wasn't just a Messiah that was going to come and rule and reign and take over and make things better, but it was one that would first, in order to do that, before he would ever be able to enter into his glory, he must first suffer and deal with sin. Jesus came the first time not to take over and to redeem Israel physically or practically, but to redeem them from their sins. All their rituals had to do with dealing with their sins against God and against man. But now, when he comes his second time, that's when he will set up his rule and reign. That's when the kingdom will come. That's when the redeeming, all that will happen, and he will rule and reign over Israel. And so he's saying, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded, or he opened up, to them in all the scriptures, the things that were concerning himself, the things that were concerning Jesus. This is why we as New Testament believers, part of the new covenant under Jesus Christ, we still read the Old Testament because though we don't follow the laws and the commandments, we live them out because we get to. We've been paid for, had our sins paid for, paid for by Jesus because he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All of the prophecies concerning the Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so when we read, as he did there, Moses, they were referring to the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then the prophets are all the prophets that God used, men that were his mouthpiece to speak to the nation of Israel during his dealings with them. So if you read Moses and all the prophets, Jesus had one of the biggest Bible studies along the road there with these two men, and he expounded to them. He opened up, and he explained to them how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these messianic prophecies. I don't know about you guys, but I wish they would have wrote down what was said. I think we would be able to have a lot easier Bible study time if we knew what Jesus had to say about the Old Testament. But we do have some of that in the New Testament when he's dealing with the disciples and with the Pharisees and and all those that he spoke to. So then verse 28, Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, they compelled him, saying, Stay with us, abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. And now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, he blessed, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. Now, we've seen this many occasions when he fed the 5,000 and then also the Passover supper they had just taken. And so this is something they had seen him do. And then it says, verse 31, 
their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished from their sight. He disappeared. They realized who he was. They realized who had been walking with them. Verse 32, and they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour. They got up and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11. Those who were with them gathered there saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. So this is what's behind the one verse we read in Mark. Mark seemingly just kind of zooms past these things, but it's exciting because there in verse 12, it says, after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. So with that being the background, we go to verse 13. And it says, and they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Luke's account in 24 says that they told him. Mark's account says, though they told him and were excited and had an awesome message and told him about how they got the best Bible study ever, ever on the way to Emmaus, they didn't believe those guys. They didn't believe Cleopas and the other guy. It's amazing to me because oftentimes what happens is God shows us an amazing truth. We go home and we forget about it. We hear what God has to tell us. We hear what his word says, but we don't receive it. <clears throat> Part of me marvels at these disciples' quickness to not believe what had happened. The message that Jesus had risen, that he was revealing himself to those who had been with him before his crucifixion, his disciples. And another part of me realizes that this is what they were used to. Okay, so Jesus told Mary Magdalene, and Jesus met with these other two guys, but what about me? He hasn't met with me. Every one of the disciples, especially the 11 that we see very detailed accounts of, each one of them was approached by Jesus personally. He called them by name. He spoke with them. He walked with them. He shared with them. He called them and he talked to them individually. So for these people to come and say, hey, Jesus isn't dead. Okay, that's great. But I haven't seen that. You have. I don't, I don't, I'm not there yet. You know, oftentimes God will show us something amazing and we, we want to go tell somebody else and they're just like, eh, I don't get it. It doesn't really impact me that much. It's not where they're at. So God has to come and meet them. But what I want you to notice is that oftentimes, even though Jesus is very personal, what they knew about him was that he had known them as individuals. And really, this is the same way that God desires to meet you and I, to approach each one of us where we're at individually. He's a God who's willing to get one-on-one -on -one with us, with you and I, to meet us right where we are. He's a king who leaves his throne and he comes to us. He, he approaches his subjects, his underlings. He speaks with us if we're willing to listen. Nonetheless, though he approaches us this way, Mark chapter 16, verse 14 says, <clears throat> later he appeared to the 11 and as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. So though he does approach us individually, I think oftentimes we think, if God will prove himself to me, then I'll believe. And these disciples had heard so much of the truth that he had to teach. And yet when he had told them, I'm going to rise again, and then the disciples were starting to get accounts. He's risen. He's not dead. They didn't believe. They didn't take hold of. They weren't fully persuaded of what he had told them before. 
They had kind of heard it, but they didn't receive it. You're going to die. I don't like that. But if they listened, continued to listen, he said, I'm going to die, but it'll be short term because I'm going to rise again. And so they missed out on the best part of the message. It's amazing to me that Jesus rebukes the disciples for being hard-hearted and not believing the message of his resurrection. Why do I think that it's amazing? Because in the next verse, Jesus commands them to go and to preach the very same message to the whole world that they had just heard, but not, but not received. They're kind of getting a little lesson. Hey, this message, now that I've appeared to you, I want you to go and tell people, I've seen Jesus. He's resurrected. And guess what? Just like you didn't receive Mary Magdalene, just like you didn't receive Cleopas, just like you didn't receive the other guy, whatever his name was, they're not going to receive you sometimes either. They're going to call you nut jobs. Oh, Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, good message. So it's amazing to me that they get humbled in this way because when they go and share the truth with others, they're going to be able to, from experience, give grace to those that don't receive it right away, to pray for them, that God would open their eyes just like he did the guys that were on the way to Emmaus. So verse 15, he said to them, go into all the world, Preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, oftentimes you'll hear mission organizations and they'll quote this verse or they'll quote from Matthew. And no doubt there are many that are called and God does send people to foreign countries. He sends them to different towns. He sends them to different areas to go and share the gospel. God's ascending God, right? Jesus left heaven, his, his humble abode. He left heaven to come down here and preach the gospel to us, to die for us, to tell us that God loves us. And in the same way, he sends people to foreign countries to do that. But the word here where it says go into all the world and preach the gospel actually means as you are going. As you are going, preach the gospel to all creatures. I think that's amazing because oftentimes we get so caught up in, I got to go on a foreign mission or I got to go support this foreign missionary. That's the way I'm going to go. But sometimes going just means as you're going, when you get up in the morning, pray with your wife. When you go to work, be with your coworkers and share the good news with them. Maybe you won't have an opportunity every day, but you can at least pray for your coworkers for an opportunity because many of them are hurting. Many of them are trying to find hope in other things. Many of them, <clears throat> the brightest part of their weekend is going to be going down to the Casey's and grabbing a bottle of something and mixing it with a soda. You know, that's the hope that the world has to offer. But the hope that Jesus Christ has to offer is way more than that. It's being able to overcome death, to conquer the grave, to live an abundant life here, to have joy in the God who loves us. I mentioned earlier that the disciples, there wasn't really anything inherently great about them other than their God, the one who had found there to be something worthy of redeeming in them. And so we're all his workmanship. And so we need to go and spread the good news that though their sins are as scarlet, just like ours were, they can be made white as snow. And so before he sends them with this message, he shows them by their own example that they may not be received. <clears throat> Actually, I love what it says in John chapter 20, verse 29. 
uh, he tells what we call Doubting Thomas. He tells him, because you have seen me, you have believed. You have been fully persuaded. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus says, for those that don't get to see my body, that don't get to walk with me, that don't get to see the holes in my hands, that didn't get to see the resurrected Lord like you and I, we're more blessed than the apostles even. I like that. You know, Jesus has spoken a blessing over us. But then he contrasts here. Verse 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So Jesus here gives a contrast between those who believe, remember that word, being those who are fully persuaded and those who are not. So he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, wait a minute. I was thinking about this because it says he who does not believe will be condemned. But in John chapter 3, verse 17, it says that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him they might be saved. So let's turn to that passage in John chapter 3. I'm actually using my Bible this week instead of just reading it. So you guys are turning and I can give you enough time to get there before rushing ahead. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So verse 16 says, and we know this one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. How many people do you know that that hear about Jesus and they go, well, you're just condemning me. You're You're just down on me because I'm not following your religion. You're trying to be condemning. You're judging me. But Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is good news. Now, to those that are perishing, it's bad news, right? Because they've got to lay down their lives. They've got to submit to someone that's not them. They want to be God. But God says, I came so that the world through Jesus might be saved. Verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned. That's good news. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. You're thinking, okay, well, what is the condemnation? This is the condemnation, verse 19, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Verse 21, excuse me, 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You know, you have one of your kids that lies to you. They don't want to be around you because their deeds will be exposed. You can tell when they're lying. God's a father. He knows when we're lying. Verse 21, but, the contrast, but he who does the truth, he who is fully persuaded by the truth, who does the truth, comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So those who are fully persuaded, their deeds will be seen too. But whether your deeds are evil or good in the sight of God, they will be revealed. That's what this passage says. But God didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him they might be saved. So here's the contrast back in Mark. He who believes 
listed there in verse uh, 17 and 18, or 16 and 17 and 18, he who believes, number one, the most important part, will be saved. Saved to eternal life. And then, number two, signs will follow those who believe. And there's a list there, and this is a controversial subject, right? Because there are many denominations that kind of focus on miracles and signs and wonders. And we can get caught up in those. And even those that followed Jesus while he was in his earthly ministry, he would heal the lame, the deaf, the blind, those that couldn't walk. He would walk on water, right? Who wouldn't want to follow a guy that was doing that? That's why we have circuses. Somebody can swallow fire. I want to see that. It's awesome. I don't want to do it. I don't think you get insurance when you're doing something like that. But signs will follow those who believe. Many times we don't follow signs as Christians and wonders. We don't follow signs. What Jesus says there is that those who believe will be followed by signs and wonders. So this just means that these things will be evident in the lives of those who believe. Number one, they'll cast out demons in Jesus' name. They'll speak new tongues. Now, the word for tongues there is not what we think like a prayer language or something we think of at a Pentecostal church, typically, right? What we're talking about with tongues there is that they'll speak other languages. We're not talking about ones that they studied so they could speak them fluently. We're talking about languages that on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down and filled the the apostles and the disciples, they spoke different languages. And so everyone that was in the crowd that day because they were able to supernaturally speak different languages, was able to hear the gospel, and and thousands got saved that day, because they were able to understand intellectually the word of God. And then they will survive deadly serpents. Uh, Paul did this in the book of Acts when he was on the island of Malta. They had been shipwrecked, and they made it to this little island. When they got there, he was picking up logs, trying to build a fire, and a snake bit him. Now, what I want you to know about that is that when the snake bit him, all of the natives that lived on that island thought he was going to die. They're like, this guy's done. He's toast. And then he lived. So that miracle was so that he would have a practical way to show them that he was saved by his God. And then he spoke to them concerning Jesus Christ. He spoke to them about the gospel. He shared with them that they could be forgiven of their sins. They didn't have to worship worthless idols. And so, um, then there was another one, excuse me, they will survive drinking poison and they will lay hands on and pray for healing and the sick will recover. We see this in the book of John. It's a pattern that James, or the book of James where he said, if anyone among you is sick and he needs healing, let him call the elders around him to anoint him with oil and to pray over him that the sick may be healed and that their sins may be forgiven. So in the New Testament, what I want to point out is that every time there's a miracle, especially in the book of Acts, which directly follows these events, every time there's a miracle listed, it's for an unbeliever, and it gives an opportunity for the good news of Jesus Christ to be shared, to be proclaimed, so that the recipient of the miracle cannot, and sometimes, be shocked into believing, and then be able to receive it by the words of those who follow. So let's finish. Last two verses. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out, they preached everywhere, the Lord making, excuse me, working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen.
So, the contrast between them not receiving the testimony of others and then them receiving it, hearing Jesus' words and being fully persuaded, and then they went, right? Those who are fully persuaded of what Jesus has done will not be those that are sitting still and not sharing their faith. Those that are fully persuaded can't help but go and share the good news. Let me ask you, are you fully convinced? Now I'm speaking to anybody in here that may not believe, and I'm speaking to anybody that might have a walk with the Lord. Are you fully convinced? Because if you're not fully convinced of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it will affect the way that you live your life. And to those that anyone here that might not believe, if you are not fully convinced of Jesus Christ, your life will prove out and your deeds will be exposed at some point. But if you are fully convinced, does that show forth in the way that you go about your life? Does the fruit in your life prove what you believe? Have you had that personal experience with the Lord that you could share as a testimony to those who have not yet believed? Or are you still on the fence and unsure of whether or not you even believe? It will affect the fruit. Are you of those, and there are many still, who do not believe the testimony of those who have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ? Do you not believe the writings in the Bible? Let me persuade you, if I could be so bold, please get off the fence. Seek the Lord while he may be found. He's not far from you. He's willing to set you straight. And all you, do, all you must do is repent from your sin. Your sin is just not believing, not being fully persuaded. Turn around from the way that you're going, the lifestyle that you're living, the sin that you're holding dear to yourself. Turn from your sin so that you can truly live. It's like going hiking. Who, take, who goes off on a hiking trip and wears a backpack that has more gear than they actually need? Travel lightly. Cast those burdens aside. Give them to the Lord. Your, your life may not get easier. They may scoff at you. People may think you're crazy. But your life will be well spent. And these disciples, we'll find out later, were willing, they were so fully persuaded that they were willing to die for their faith. It wasn't just something that they thought, you know, let's keep the conspiracy going. They were fully persuaded. I just guess I just want to encourage you guys, be fully persuaded by the words that you read and the words that you, you hear. And let others encourage you, even if they're the unlikely vessel you're not used to listening to. But let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to uh, study through the entire book of Mark. It's amazing to me that you were willing to continually, over and over again, show the, the disciples and the apostles um, that your word was true and that they could fully rest in it. Lord, I pray tonight that if anyone here has been kind of off the map and not fully trusting in you, that you would just let them know you're not here to condemn them. You just want to encourage them to get off the fence and get going. Not so much so that they can just have works to earn salvation, but so they, they can have a full and abundant life here on earth. And Lord, so that you can help them through it. Lord, make us dependent upon you as disciples. But Father, I thank you so much for this time. Thank you for these attention. And Lord, I just pray that this time was a blessing. And I pray that you hear our worship as we sing, as we realize how much you've truly done for us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.